Within a few months of taking over the company, he began what he called the hardware revolution. It changed the entire profile and focus of the company. Waltz said, To the hundreds of businesses and product lines that made up the company, we applied a single criterion. Can they be number one or number two at whatever they do in the world marketplace? Of the 348 businesses or product lines that could not, we closed some and divested others. Their sale brought in almost $10 billion. We invested $18 billion in the ones that remained and further strengthened them with $17 billion worth of acquisitions. What remained in 1989, aside from a few relatively small supporting operations, are 14 world-class businesses, all well-positioned for the 90s, each one either first or second in the world market in which it participates. I know Welch is out of favor in some circles, and recently his methods have been criticized, but his leadership was right for his time and situation. He reprioritized GE, and his strong leadership and focus paid incredible dividends. During his tenure, GE stock experienced a two-to-one split four times, and it traded at more than $80 per share when he retired. The company was ranked as the nation's most admired company, according to Fortune, and it continues to be one of the most valuable companies in the world. That came about because of Welch's ability to use the law of priorities in his leadership. He never mistook activity for accomplishment. He knew that the greatest success comes only after you focus your people on what really matters. Examine the lives of all effective leaders, and you will see them putting priorities into action. Every time Norman Schwarzkopf assumed a new command, he didn't just rely on his leadership intuition. He also re-examined the unit's priorities. Lance Armstrong was able to win seven Tour de France championships because his priorities guided his training regimen. When explorer Roald Almondson succeeded in taking his team to the South Pole and back, it was due in part to his ability to set right priorities. Successful leaders live according to the law of priorities. They recognize that activity is not necessarily accomplishment. Law number 18, the law of sacrifice. A leader must give up to go up. Why does an individual step forward to lead other people? For every person, the answer is different. A few do to survive. Some do it to make money. Many desire to build a business or organization. Others do it because they want to change the world. That was the reason for Martin Luther King, Jr. King accepted his first pastorate in Montgomery, Alabama, at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in 1954, and settled into family life when his first child was born the next year in November. But that peace didn't last long. Less than a month later, Rosa Parks refused to relinquish her seat on a bus to a white passenger and was arrested. Local African-American leaders arranged a one-day boycott of the transit system to protest her arrest and the city's segregation policy. When it was successful, they decided to create the Montgomery Improvement Association to continue the boycott. Already recognized as a leader in the community, Keene was unanimously elected president of the newly formed organization. For the next year, Keene led African-American community leaders in a boycott with the goal of changing the system. 
the MIA negotiated with city leaders and demanded courteous treatment of African Americans by bus operators, first-come, first-served seating for all bus riders, and employment of African American bus drivers. While the boycott was on, community leaders organized carpools, raised funds to support the boycott financially, rallied and mobilized the community with sermons, and coordinated legal challenges with the NAACP. Filed in November 1956, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the laws allowing segregated seating on buses. Keene and the other leaders were successful. Their world was beginning to change. The Montgomery bus boycott was a major step in the American civil rights movement, and it's easy to see what was gained as a result of it. But Keene also began paying a personal cost for it. Soon after the boycott began, Keene was arrested for a minor traffic violation. A bomb was thrown onto his porch, and he was indicted on a charge of being party to a conspiracy to hinder and prevent the operation of business without just or legal cause. Keene was emerging as a leader, but he was paying a price for it. Each time Keene climbed higher and moved forward in leadership for the cause of civil rights, the greater the price he paid for it. His wife Coretta Scott Keene remarked in My Life with Martin Luther King, Jr., Day and night our phone would ring and someone would pour out a string of obscene epithets. Frequently the calls ended with a threat to kill us if we didn't get out of town. But in spite of all the danger, the chaos of our private lives, I felt inspired, almost elated. Keene did some great things as a leader. He met with presidents, he delivered rousing speeches that are considered some of the most outstanding examples of oration in American history. He led 250,000 people in a peaceful march on Washington, D.C. He received the Nobel Peace Prize, and he did create change in this country. But the law of sacrifice demands that the greater the leader, the more he must give up. During that same period, Keene was arrested many times and jailed on many occasions. He was stoned, stabbed, and physically attacked. His house was bombed, yet his vision and his influence continued to increase. Ultimately, he sacrificed everything he had, but what he gave up, he parted with willingly. Eventually, he paid the ultimate price of sacrifice. Keene's impact was profound. He influenced millions of people to peacefully stand up against a system and society that fought to exclude them. The United States has changed for the better because of his leadership. There is a common misperception among people who aren't leaders that leadership is all about the position, perks, and power that come from rising in an organization. Many people today want to climb up the corporate ladder because they believe that freedom, power, and wealth are the prizes waiting at the top. The life of a leader can look glamorous to people on the outside, but the reality is that leadership requires sacrifice. A leader must give up to go up. In recent years, we've observed more than our share of leaders who used and abused their organizations for their personal benefit, and the resulting corporate scandals that came because of their greed and selfishness. The heart of good leadership is sacrifice. If you desire to become the best leader you can be, then you need to be willing to make sacrifices in order to lead well. If that is your desire, then here are some things you need to know about the law of sacrifice. Number one, there is no success 
without sacrifice. Every person who has achieved any success in life has made sacrifices to do so. Many working people dedicate four or more years and pay thousands of dollars to attend college to get the tools that they'll need before embarking on their career. Athletes sacrifice countless hours in the gym or on the practice field, preparing themselves to perform at a higher level. Parents give up much of their free time and sacrifice their resources in order to do a good job raising their children. Leaders must give up to go up. That's true of every leader, regardless of profession. Talk to leaders, and you will find that they have made repeated sacrifices. Effective leaders sacrifice much that is good in order to dedicate themselves to what is best. That's the way the law of sacrifice works. Number two, leaders are often asked to give up more than others. The heart of leadership is putting others ahead of yourself. It's doing what is best for the team. For that reason, I believe that leaders have to give up their rights. When you have no responsibilities, you can do pretty much anything you want. Once you take on responsibility, you start to experience limitations in what you can do. The more responsibility you accept, the fewer options you have. Everyone who leads gives up other opportunities. Some people have to give up beloved hobbies. Many give up aspects of their personal lives. Some, like Keen, give their actual lives. The circumstances are different from person to person, but the principle doesn't change. Leadership means sacrifice. Number three, you must keep giving up to stay up. Most people are willing to acknowledge that sacrifices are necessary early in a leadership career in order to make progress. They'll take an undesirable territory to make a name for themselves. They'll move their family to a less desirable city to accept a better position. They'll take a temporary cut in pay for greater opportunities for advancement. The problem for leaders comes when they think they've earned the right to stop making sacrifices. But in leadership, sacrifice is an ongoing process, not a one-time payment. If leaders have to give up to go up, then they have to give up even more to stay up. Have you ever considered how infrequently sports teams have back-to-back -back championship seasons? The reason is simple. If a leader can win one championship with his team, he often assumes he can duplicate the results the next year by doing the same thing. He becomes reluctant to make additional sacrifices in the off-season to prepare for what is often an even greater challenge the next year. But today's success is the greatest threat to tomorrow's success. And what gets a team to the top isn't what keeps it there. The only way to stay up is to give up even more. Leadership success requires continual change, constant improvement, and ongoing sacrifice. Number four, the higher the level of leadership, the greater the sacrifice. Have you ever been part of an auction? It's an exciting experience. An item comes up for a bid, and everyone in the room gets excited. When the bidding opens, lots of people jump in and take part. But as the price goes higher and higher, what happens? There are fewer and fewer bidders. When the price is low, everyone bids. In the end, only one person is willing to pay the high price that the item actually cost. It's the same in leadership. The higher you go, the more it's going to cost you. And it doesn't matter what kind of leadership career you pick. You will have to make sacrifices. You will have to give up to go up. 
There can be no success without sacrifice. Anytime you see success, you can be sure someone made sacrifices to make it happen. And as a leader, if you sacrifice, even if you don't witness the success, you can be sure that someone in the future will benefit from what you've given. That was certainly true of Martin Luther King, Jr., he did not live to see most of the benefits of his sacrifices, but many others have. One such person was an African-American girl born in segregated Birmingham, Alabama in 1954. A precocious child, she followed the news of the day, including civil rights struggles. A neighbor recalls that she was always interested in politics because, as a little girl, she used to call me and say things like, "'Did you see what Bull Connor did today?' describing the racist city commissioner. She was just a little girl, and she did that all the time. I would have to read the newspaper thoroughly because I wouldn't know what she was going to talk about. Though she had an interest in current events, her passion was music. While other children were out playing, she was studying and practicing the piano. Her parents named her Condolisa, from the musical notation Condolcessa, which means with sweetness. Her schedule was often grueling. After the family moved to Denver when she was 13, she worked harder and made more sacrifices. She was highly disciplined. To be able to compete in both figure skating and piano competitions, she would get up at 4.30 in the morning to fit everything in. One of her teachers commented, There was a core of her that revealed she knew what she wanted and was willing to make the sacrifices. I think in her mind... They were not sacrifices, but things to do that were necessary to keep with her goals. And her parents supported her fully, and were willing to make sacrifices for her success as well. To assist her in her goals as a pianist, they took out a $13,000 loan in 1969 to buy her a used Steinway Grand Piano. Rice graduated early from high school and went to the University of Denver with the intention of earning a degree in music and becoming a professional concert pianist. It was something that she had made sacrifices her entire life to do. But after her sophomore year, she realized that if she was going to reach her personal potential, it would not be in music. So she began searching for a new field. She found it in international politics. She was drawn like a magnet to Russian culture and the Soviet government. For the next two years, she immersed herself in her courses, did extensive outside reading, and learned the Russian language. She had found her niche, and she was still willing to pay the price to go to the highest level. After graduating with her bachelor's degree, she went on to Notre Dame to get her master's degree. She then returned to the University of Denver and earned a Ph.D. at the age of 26. When she received an offer for a fellowship at Stanford, she jumped at it. A few months later, she was recruited to become a member of the university's faculty. She had arrived. Most people would be happy if the rest of the story played out something like this. Publish a few articles, then a book or two, earn tenure, and eventually settle into a comfortable life in the academic community. Not Rice. True, she did carve out a place for herself at Stanford. It was an environment that she loved. She enjoyed the intellectual stimulation. She was a talented teacher who found teaching and counseling students highly rewarding. She even became an avid fan of the university's sports teams. She thrived and received one award after the other. But she spent a year at the Pentagon in an advisory position with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. She called it a reality check, practical experience that informed her teaching and writing. 
Then in 1989, the White House called. She was invited to accept a position on the National Security Council as the Director of Soviet and East European Affairs. She took a leave of absence from Stanford, and it turned out to be a wonderful decision. She was President George H. W. Bush's primary advisor on the Soviet Union as that government disintegrated, and she helped in creating policy for the unification of Germany. It made her one of the world's experts on the subject. She returned to Stanford after two years in Washington. Back at Stanford, she possessed even greater clout. In two years, she was made a full professor at the age of 38. A month later, she was asked to become provost, a position that had never been held by an African-American, by a woman, or by anyone so young. As the second-in-command at one of the world's premier universities, Rice had it made. She had proven herself as an executive. She was already sitting on many corporate boards, and she was in position to become president of any university in the nation. So some people might have been surprised when she stepped down as provost and began tutoring George W. Bush, then governor of Texas, on foreign policy. But it was a sacrifice she was willing to make, one that led her to becoming national security advisor and eventually U.S. Secretary of State. As I read this, Rice continues to serve in that role. What once looked like a sacrifice has made her more influential than ever. She has been consistently willing to give up, to go up, and I have no doubt that she will make whatever sacrifices are necessary to take the next step. That's what happens when a leader understands and lives by the law of sacrifice. Law number 19, the law of timing. When to lead is as important as what to do and where to go. If ever there was an example of the importance of timing as it relates to leadership, it came in New Orleans in late August and early September of 2005. On Wednesday, August 24, 2005, nobody in New Orleans could have known that the newly formed tropical storm named Katrina would be the big one. The hurricane the city had feared would someday come. It wasn't until Friday that the National Hurricane Center predicted that the storm would reach landfall on Monday somewhere near Burris, Louisiana, about 60 miles southeast of New Orleans. The hurricane was already looking like a bad one. The next morning, Saturday, August 27th, the leaders of many of Louisiana's parishes around New Orleans ordered mandatory evacuations. St. Charles Plaquemine, parts of Jefferson, and even St. Tammany, which is situated on higher ground north of New Orleans. But what about New Orleans? Why didn't Mayor Ray Nagin, the leader of the city, order a mandatory evacuation at the same time? Many people say New Orleanians are fatalistic, and they can't be made to move any faster than they want to go. Others say that Nagin, a businessman before he was elected, was worried about the legal and financial implications of an evacuation. I say he and others in government didn't understand the law of timing. When to lead is as important as what to do and where to go. The time to move the people of New Orleans was when the other parish leaders announced their mandatory evacuations. Nagin waited. On Saturday evening, he finally announced a voluntary evacuation of New Orleans. Only after Max Mayfield, the director of the National Hurricane Center, 
called Nagin on Saturday night, did the mayor become concerned enough to act. Max scared the crap out of me, Nagin is reported to have said after the call. The next morning at nine o'clock, Nagin finally ordered a mandatory evacuation, fewer than twenty-four hours before the hurricane would make landfall. It was much too late for many citizens of New Orleans. And how did he plan to help those people who couldn't make it out of town on such a short notice? He advised them to get to the Superdome, the city's shelter of last resort, however they could. But he made no real provisions for them. If someone was going to step in and lead, it would have had to occur somewhere other than the local level. Most people began looking to the federal government for leadership, but they violated the law of timing, too. Not until Wednesday, August 31, did Director of Homeland Security Michael Chertoff release a memo declaring Katrina an incident of national significance, a key designation needed to trigger swift federal coordination. President Bush didn't meet with his cabinet until the following day to determine how to launch the White House task force on Hurricane Katrina response. Meanwhile, the people stranded in New Orleans waited for help. On Thursday, September 1, the Red Cross requested permission to take water, food, and supplies to the people who were stranded in the city, but their request was denied by the Louisiana Office of Homeland Security. They were asked to wait another day. Finally, on Sunday, September 4, six days after New Orleans flooded, the evacuation of the Superdome was finally complete. The way Katrina was handled shows leadership timing at its worst. It was botched at every level. Good leaders recognize that when to lead is as important as what to do and where to go. Timing is often the difference between success and failure in an endeavor. Every time a leader must make a move, there are really only four outcomes. Number one, the wrong action at the wrong time leads to disaster. A leader who takes the wrong action at the wrong time is sure to suffer negative repercussions. That was certainly the case in New Orleans as Katrina approached. Nagin's poor leadership set in motion a series of wrong actions at the wrong time. He waited until it was too late to call for mandatory evacuation. He sent faxes to local churches, hoping that they would help with evacuating people. But by the time he did so, the people who would have received the faxes were already long gone. He picked a poor location for the shelter of last resort, neglected to supply it properly, and failed to provide adequate transportation for people to get there. One wrong action after another led to disaster. Obviously, the stakes for every leadership decision are not as high as they were for Mayor Nagin. But every leadership situation requires that leaders heed the law of timing. If you lead a department or a small team, and you take the wrong action at the wrong time, your people will suffer, and so will your leadership. Number two, the right action at the wrong time brings resistance. When it comes to good leadership, having a vision for the direction of the organization or team and knowing how to get there aren't enough. If you take the right action but do it at the wrong time, you may still be unsuccessful because the people you lead can become resistant. Good leadership timing requires many things. Understanding. Leaders must have a firm grasp on the situation. Maturity. If leaders' motives aren't right, their timing will be off. Confidence. People follow leaders who know what must be done. Decisiveness. Wishy-washy leaders create wishy-washy 
followers. Experience. If leaders don't possess experience, then they need to gain wisdom from others who do possess it. Intuition. Timing often depends on intangibles such as momentum and morale. Preparation. If the conditions aren't right, leaders must create those conditions. Without all of those things, timing is bound to be off. Number three. The wrong action at the right time is a mistake. People who are naturally entrepreneurial often possess a strong sense of timing. They intuitively know when it's time to make a move, to seize an opportunity. They sometimes make mistakes in their actions at those key moments. My brother, Larry, who is an excellent businessman, has coached me in this area. Larry says the greatest mistake made by entrepreneurs and other people in business is knowing when to cut their losses or when to increase their investment to maximize their gains. Their mistakes come from taking the wrong action at the right time. Number four, the right action at the right time results in success. When the right leader and the right timing come together, incredible things happen. An organization achieves its goals, reaps incredible rewards, and gains momentum. Success almost becomes inevitable. If you look at the history of nearly any organization, you will find a pivotal moment when the right leader took the right action at the right time and it transformed the organization. When the stakes are high, the consequences of the law of timing are dramatic and immediate. That is certainly true in war. In any major battle, the critical importance of timing becomes evident. The Battle of Gettysburg during the American Civil War is a prime example. When Confederate General Robert E. Lee took the Army of Northern Virginia into Pennsylvania in late June of 1863, it was the third year of the war, and both the Union and the Confederacy were growing weary of this conflict. Several days prior to the battle, Lee told General Trimble, I have not yet heard that the enemy have crossed the Potomac, and I'm waiting to hear from General Stuart. When they hear where they are, they will make forced marches. They will come up, broken down from hunger and hard marching, strung out on a long line and much demoralized when they come to Pennsylvania. I shall throw an overwhelming force on their advance, crush it, follow up the success, drive one corps back into the other, and by successive repulses and surprises, before they can concentrate, create a panic, and virtually destroy the army. Lee was trying to seize the opportunity for overwhelming victory. He didn't know until the morning of July 1 that the Union army had already moved north. By then, some of its forces were already engaging Confederate troops on Chambersburg Road west of Gettysburg. That development disrupted Lee's strategy and ruined his timing. Lee's first instinct was to hold back and wait for his army's full strength to assemble before forcing a major engagement. But always conscious of the importance of timing, he recognized when his troops had sudden advantage. As Lee watched from a nearby ridge, he saw that Federal troops were being routed and retreating. There was still a chance to take action that could lead to victory. Confederate forces could attack and seize the high ground of Cemetery Hill defended only by a few Union infantry reserves and artillery. In position to take that hill was Confederate General R.S. Ewell. It was still early in the day, and if Ewell moved forward, he could take it. But instead of pressing his advantage when the time was ripe and engaging the enemy, 
Ewell simply watched. He let the opportunity slip away, and the Confederates didn't take Cemetery Hill. By the next morning, Union troops had reinforced their previous positions, and the South's chance was gone. President Lincoln recognized that the timing was right. The Union army could crush what was left of the Confederate forces and could end the war. But just as the Southern forces did not seize the moment for victory when it was available to them, neither did their Northern counterparts. General Meade took his time following up his victory at Gettysburg, and he didn't pursue Lee aggressively enough. Lincoln knew he was seeing the Union's chance slip away, and he was right. What remained of the Army of Northern Virginia crossed over the Potomac, escaping destruction, and the war continued for almost two more years, and hundreds of thousands more troops died. Leaders from both sides had known what to do to achieve victory, but they failed to follow through at the critical moment. Reading the situation and knowing what to do are not enough to make you succeed in leadership. If you want your organization, department, or team to move forward— you must pay attention to timing. Only the right action at the right time will bring success. Anything else exacts a high price. No leader can escape the law of timing. Law number 20. The Law of Explosive Growth To add growth, lead followers. To multiply, lead leaders. In 1990, I traveled to a country in South America with my wife, Margaret, to teach leadership in a national conference. I could tell my comments were not connecting with them. They didn't engage, and what I was trying to communicate didn't seem to make an impact. The people I spoke to didn't understand leadership, and they had no desire to learn anything about it. For someone like me, who believes that everything rises and falls on leadership, it drove me crazy. This wasn't the first time I had experienced such frustration. I noticed that whenever I traveled to developing countries, I faced similar situations. I suspect that in nations where there is no strong business infrastructure and where government doesn't allow its citizens much freedom, it is difficult for leaders to develop. On the flight home, I talked to Margaret about my frustrations. I finally summed it up, saying, I don't want to do this anymore. I traveled thousands of miles just to counsel people on petty conflicts. If they would just turn their attention to becoming leaders, it would change their lives. After listening patiently, Margaret replied, Maybe you're the one who's supposed to do something about this. Margaret's exhortation to do something about the leadership problems I had seen overseas stirred something within me. For the next several years, I reflected on the issue and thought about possible solutions. Finally, in 1996, I decided what I would do. I brought together a group of leaders to help me create a not-for-profit organization to develop leaders in government, education, and religious community. I named it EQUIP, which stands for Encouraging Qualities Undeveloped in People. We would try to develop one million leaders around the globe by 2008. How could a small non-profit organization hope to accomplish such a feat? By using the law of explosive growth, Equip's strategy, which came to be called the Million Leader Mandate, was to develop 40,000 leaders in countries around the world. Those leaders would attend a training session every six months in a city near them for three years. The only thing that would be asked of them in return was that they commit to personally develop 25 leaders in their own city, town, or village. 
Equip would provide the training material for the 40,000 leaders it trained, and it would provide material for the 25 leaders each of them would be developing. If the strategy succeeded, we would develop one million leaders. It was an ambitious plan. The question was, would it work? I'll give you the answer to that question later in this chapter. You can grow by leading followers, but if you want to maximize your leadership and help your organization reach its potential, you need to develop leaders. There is no other way to experience explosive growth. Becoming a leader who develops leaders requires an entirely different focus and attitude from simply attracting and leading followers. It takes a different mindset. When you're leading a group of people, who typically ask for the most time and attention? The weakest ones in the group. If you allow them to, they will consume 80% or more of your time. However, proactive leaders who practice the law of explosive growth don't allow that bottom 20% to take all their time. They seek out the best 20%, the people with the greatest leadership potential, and they invest their time developing them. They know that if they develop the best, the best will help with the rest. There's a myth in some leadership circles that promotes the idea of treating everyone the same for the sake of fairness. What a mistake. As Mick Delaney says, any business or industry that pays equal rewards to its goof-offs and its eager beavers sooner or later will find itself with more goof-offs than eager beavers. Leaders who develop leaders give rewards, resources, and responsibility based on results. The greater the impact of leaders, the greater the opportunities they receive. Leaders who attract followers but never develop leaders get tired. Why? Because they themselves must deal with every person under their authority. Being able to impact only the people you can touch personally is very limiting. In contrast, leaders who develop leaders impact people far beyond their personal reach. If developing leaders has such a great impact, then why doesn't everyone do it? Because it's hard. Leadership development isn't an add-water-and-stir proposition. It takes a lot of time, energy, and resources. Once you find leaders, drawing them in can be very difficult. They're entrepreneurial and want to go on their own way. If you try to recruit them, they want to know where you're going, how you plan to get there, who else you're planning to take with you, and whether they can drive. What you're doing has to be more compelling than what they're already doing. On top of that, your organization needs to create an environment that is attractive to them. That is often not the case. Most organizations desire stability. Leaders want excitement. Most organizations desire structure. Leaders want flexibility. Most organizations place a high value on following rules. Leaders want to think outside the box. If you want to gather leaders, you must create a place where they can thrive. As hard as it is to find and gather good leaders, it's even more difficult to keep them. The only way to lead leaders is to become a better leader yourself. If you keep growing and stay ahead of the people you lead, you will be able to keep adding value to the leaders who follow you. Your goals must be to keep developing them so that they can realize their potential. Only a leader can do that for another leader because it takes a leader to raise up another leader. If you keep adding value to the leaders you lead, then they will be willing to stay with you. Do that long enough and they may never want to leave. Convinced that developing leaders was the key to reaching our goal of training a million leaders, 
Equip launched the MLN, Million Leaders Mandate Initiative, in 2002 in several cities in India, Indonesia, and the Philippines. We had chosen those areas because we had the best contacts there and had experienced success there in previous years. The response was overwhelming. Hundreds of hungry leaders traveled to each site to engage in the two-day training. Some attendees spent as many as five days walking to get to the event. And at the end of the training, when we asked attendees to commit to developing 25 leaders over the next three years using the materials that we would give them, more than 90% of the attendees signed on. With the first success under our belt, we moved forward. The next year we began training leaders in other parts of Asia and the Middle East. In 2004 we started training in Africa, in 2005 Europe, and in 2006 South America. In some cities we had very modest success, with a few dozen leaders attending the training. In other cities people came by the hundreds. Many leaders were able to commit to developing 25 leaders. Some could commit to training only 5 or 10, but others were training 100, 200, or 250 in their towns and cities. As I mentioned, we wanted to reach our goal of training 1 million leaders by 2008. At times it was a struggle. In some countries we had a difficult time gaining credibility. In others it took us a long time to make connections with leaders. But to our great surprise and delight, in the spring of 2006, we reached our goal, two years ahead of schedule. Now what seemed to be an impossible goal seems modest. In 2007, we trained our second million, and we launched an initiative to develop five million leaders in the next five years. My hope and prayer are that before I'm finished, Equip and its partners will train 50 million leaders around the globe. That's explosive growth. Leaders who develop leaders experience an incredible multiplication effect in their organizations that can be achieved in no other way, not by increasing resources, reducing costs, increasing profit margins, improving systems, implementing quality procedures, or doing anything else. The only way to experience an explosive level of growth is to do the math. Leaders' math. That's the incredible power of the law of explosive growth. Law 21, The Law of Legacy A leader's lasting value is measured by succession. What do you want people to say at your funeral? <laughs> that may seem like an odd question, but it may be the most important thing that you can ask yourself as a leader. Most people never consider it. And that's not good because if they don't, their lives and leadership can take a direction different from that of their greatest potential and impact. If you want your leadership to really have meaning, you need to take into account the law of legacy. Why? Because a leader's lasting value is measured by succession. Claire Booth Luce, the writer, politician, and ambassador, popularized the idea of the life sentence, a statement summarizing the goal and the purpose of one's life. When I started in my career in the late 1960s, my life sentence could have been expressed as, I want to be a great pastor. Several years later, as I worked and realized my shortcomings as a speaker, my sentence changed to be, I want to be a great communicator. For more than a decade, improving my speaking skills became a major focus. However, when I reached my early 30s, I realized that if all I ever did was speak, 
my impact would always be limited. There are only so many days in a year and so many people who will come to an event to hear you. I wanted to reach more people than that. That's when I decided I want to be a great writer. But when I reached my forties, my focus changed again. And that's when I decided I want to become a great leader. I wanted to build and lead organizations that could make a difference. I've discovered that at every stage of my life, I've grown and my world has gotten bigger. As the result, my life sentence has changed. When I was in my late fifties, I thought about all of the previous statements I had embraced, and I realized that they all had a common denominator, adding value to others. That was really my desire. I wanted to be an effective pastor, communicator, writer, and leader so that I could help people. Now that I've turned sixty, I finally settled on the life sentence that I believe will serve me the rest of my days. When they hold my funeral, I hope I will have lived a life that prompts people to know why I was here. And they won't have to guess at it. My sentence is, I want to add value to leaders who will multiply value to others. Why is it so important to pay attention to your life sentence? Because your life sentence not only sets the direction for your life, but it also determines the legacy that you will leave. We have a choice about the legacy we will leave, and we must work and be intentional to leave the legacy we want. Most people simply accept their lives. They don't leave them. I believe people need to be proactive about how they live, and I believe that is especially true of leaders. A legacy lives on in people, not things. Too often leaders put their energy into organizations, buildings, systems, or other lifeless objects. But only people live on after we are gone. Everything else is temporary. There's often a natural progression to how leaders develop the area of legacy, starting with the desire to achieve. Achievement comes when they do big things by themselves. Success comes when they empower followers to do big things for them. Significance comes when they develop leaders to do great things with them. Legacy comes when they put leaders in position to do great things without them. Just about anybody can make an organization look good for a moment by launching a flashy new program or product, drawing crowds to a big event, or slashing the budget to boost the bottom line. But leaders who leave a legacy take a different approach. They take the long view. Author, educator, and theologian Elton Trueblood wrote, We have made at least a start in discovering the meaning in human life when we plant a shade tree under which we know full well we will never sit. The best leaders lead today with tomorrow in mind by making sure that they invest in leaders who will carry their legacy forward. Why? Because a leader's lasting value is measured by succession. That is the law of legacy. Conclusion Everything rises and falls on leadership. Well, there you have them. The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. Learn them, take them to heart, and apply them to your life. If you follow them, people will follow you. I wish you great leadership success. Pursue your dreams. Strive for excellence. Become the person you were created to be and accomplish all that you were put on this earth to do. Leadership will help you do that. Learn to lead, not just for yourself, 
but for the people who will follow you. And as you reach the highest levels, don't forget to take others with you to be the leaders of tomorrow. That concludes the 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership by John C. Maxwell. Copyright 2007, published by Thomas Nelson. Dr. John C. Maxwell is an internationally recognized leadership expert, speaker, and author who has sold over 12 million books. His organizations have trained more than 1 million leaders worldwide. Dr. Maxwell is the founder of Enjoy Stewardship Services and Equip. Every year, he speaks to Fortune 500 companies, international government leaders, and organizations as diverse as the United States Military Academy at West Point and the National Football League. Look for the complete, unabridged, 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership book in bookstores everywhere, as well as other books and audio programs by John C. Maxwell, including The Difference Maker, Talent is Never Enough, and The 360-Degree Leader. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.